0: Last week we looked at the idea of submitting to unreasonable authorities just like Jesus did. We saw the need for citizens to submit to unjust kings and for slaves to submit to unreasonable masters. And today we'll see God's words through Peter for wives to submit to even potentially unbelieving husbands and then also for husbands to honor their wives. Today I think Peter's focus in chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 is to value what God finds valuable in marriage. The first thing that we see here is this idea of wives submitting to unbelieving husbands. Though the Bible has many warnings against believers marrying unbelievers, sometimes Christians ignore these warnings, or sometimes two unbelievers will marry each other and then one becomes a believer. Paul discusses this reality, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Some wives also just find themselves in the state of having unbelieving husbands, such as apparently Timothy's mother Eunice in 2 Timothy 1.5, who had a Gentile husband, who didn't seem to be around to help raise Timothy or at least to teach him about things of God. Peter's focus here, though, is not so much on whether you should marry an unbeliever or whether it is okay for a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever to end at some point. Instead, Peter points to attitudes and behaviors that God can use of a believing wife to bring an unbelieving husband to salvation or for a believing wife to honor a believing husband. So the first thing we see here in verses 1 and 2 is this idea of submitting with chaste and respectful behavior. This passage is saying to submit even if your husband is disobedient to God's Word, so that God can use your behavior as a powerful testimony of His grace. Submission is a word that's often misunderstood in our society today. Submission is not a absolute obedience because as we saw even in Peter's own experience uh, as we looked last week uh, when he was told by the authorities of government over him both religious and otherwise that he could for example not keep preaching and telling people about Jesus he said we have to keep doing this and when they told him again not to do it he said we have to obey God rather than men And so this is not an absolute obedience that never questions, never has any uh, uh, hesitation about what's being asked, because the exact same word is used of citizens toward government and of slaves toward masters and here of wives toward husbands. It is also not intended to be a kind of subjugation that is forced by the husband toward the wife, This is not husbands, make your wives submit. This is wives, for God's sake, submit to your husbands. In all, as we saw last week, submission is a recognition of authority structures that God has established. What are some examples of what this might look like? Well, perhaps a husband says something like, don't pray, don't gather at church, don't mention Jesus. A wife would still be obligated to God over her husband in that instance and still need to do those things. If a husband said something like, and I'm not trying to make light of things, but says, you can never eat chocolate again. Don't ever make me a salad. Here's the budget that I expect you to follow. Those might be things that are irritating, upsetting, frustrating, frustrating but there would still be an obligation for a wife to follow her husband in that instance. Much like none of us, as we looked at last week, none of us like paying taxes, but this is an obligation that God has laid on us to follow the government authorities that He's placed over us, to pay taxes, to follow the laws that they established, except to the extent that they come in conflict with things that God has said we must do or that we cannot do. And so to the extent that there are things that God has said to a believing wife, you must do, you must have a relationship with me. That takes priority. If her husband says, no, stop praying to God, stop believing in God. Why do I say that? Well, again, looking back to the old Testament, Daniel in the old Testament, when the King said, don't pray to God anymore. What did Daniel do? He kept praying. It meant the lion's den. It meant uh, the fiery furnace for Daniel's friends. If they, didn't worship the way that they were asked to worship. And in the same way, a wife cannot submit to a husband that says, do this thing that God says not to do. She can't say, I'm going to do some immoral thing because my husband says I should do it. And she can't say, I'm going to stop doing what God requires of me because my husband said to stop doing it. Sometimes people look at a passage like this and they say, well, but this sets up a relationship in which there is going to be abuse and mistreatment of a husband toward a wife, and she has no out. This passage is not saying that. If he is legitimately threatening you with harm, you should not stay. But, and this is a very important thing to note, if he is ungrateful and selfish, that does not rise to the level of you leaving and going somewhere else. And this is the hard truth and reality and difficulty of a passage like this. Much as we have things that government authorities ask us to do that we don't like, but God calls us to do anyway, there are things in the context of other relationships that God calls us to do that we don't necessarily like, but we still need to do those things. Think about what this would have looked like in the context of what Peter is is speaking of. Perhaps Timothy's mother, perhaps some other woman who has a husband who doesn't believe in God. He's not going to see the point of prayer. He's not going to want any children involved in the home to necessarily be taught about God. He's going to be quite possibly a miserable wretch in the way that he interacts with his wife. Ungrateful, not expressing appreciation, not being thankful for anything that she's doing. Uh, expecting unreasonable things, possibly being lazy. There's any number of forms that this could take. And we see a passage like this and we immediately think, how can I avoid being in this situation? And if I find myself in it, how can I get out of it? And this passage is calling people, specifically wives, who have unbelieving husbands to say, how can I honor God in the midst of a difficult situation? Just like the slave who had an unreasonable master was to honor that master, just like the citizen with an unjust government was to honor that government. So what is someone supposed to do in this situation? If there is an obligation to follow... And if there is ultimately not an ability to bend the situation in the direction that you would like it to go, what then should she do? I think that she should pray more and be an example of God's love so that God might use her life to win her husband. We see this in verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. We see this also in chapter 3, verse 20. It talks about those who were disobedient before. In, uh, in other places as well, in chapter 4, verse 17, it talks about those who do not obey the gospel of God. These are parallel phrases where this idea of obedience to, is used. And then in um, John 3.36, it has this, this sober warning It says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so there should be a sense of compassion for those of us who know God toward those who do not, that by our life and example and words and everything about it, that God would use that to win that person and bring him to himself. Here's the really important point that we see also in verse 2. It is to submit with purity of life and respect. But I think in context, it is respect for God. Now, are there other passages that talk about a wife respecting her husband? Yes, we see that in Ephesians 5, for example, and perhaps also in Colossians. But in this passage, the respect in context, given the context of what Peter said up to this point, appears to be for God. Why purity? Why innocence? Why being chaste? Because God himself is pure. There is an idea here that uh, she is living in such a way that there is no grounds for accusation. Paul talks about being jealous of the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.2 That to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. In Philippians four eight it says, think on things that are pure. In uh, Titus 2-5, uh, it talks about the idea that older women are to teach younger women to be sensible, to be pure, workers at home, kind, and so forth. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him, on God, purifies himself, just as he, as God, is pure. And so why is she living in a way that's pure? It's not ultimately to please her husband or to be well thought of by the people around her, but because it is becoming like God in who God is, and because God himself is pure. Peter also, I think, has this implied idea that we've already talked about earlier in the book, that to the extent that you're living in a way that is right, there is no basis for legitimate accusation against your life. Why do I say fear or respect for God? Because in chapter 1, verse 17, it says, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. The fear in this passage, this respect in this passage, is toward God, not primarily toward her husband. And the idea would be, here's a wife who has fear of God demonstrated in her life. And her husband sees that fear of God, and that in turn leads him to fear God. So it is a submission with pure and fear of God kind of behavior. Purity of life in God's sight, fear of God that is exemplified before even a husband who is unbelieving. Again, we come to a passage like this, and the trend of society, even perhaps something in our own hearts, makes us want to try to explain away what it's saying. But what we need to do first, before we consider all the things that other passages and other places in the Bible talk about, is what is this specific passage saying, and this specific passage is saying to a wife who has a husband who doesn't know God, live your life in such a way that God can use your testimony and your relationship with God to bring Him to a relationship with God. Don't immediately abandon it because it's difficult. Don't immediately look for a way to make it better because it's not what you hoped and dreamed for and expected. To the extent that you can, like Jesus, entrust your soul to God, In the moment in which you find yourself, do that. Now again, there are people who have used this as a justification for saying that a wife should stay in a situation where her husband is abusing her or threatening harm to children or things like that. That is not at all what this is getting at. But nor is it saying, here's your easy out when life gets difficult. And so we need to maintain that biblical balance. The passage also says to submit with a focus on internal versus external beauty. Many women focus on external beauty, hair, jewelry, clothing, and so on. Here is the the challenge with that. The reality is that beauty fades, at least external beauty as we commonly think of it, no matter what you do. So take something like wrinkles, right? Right? How can you avoid wrinkles? Well, if you smile, you get what are called laugh lines, right? So we might say, well, the solution is never smile. That's a solution, but not the right one, right? Society would say, well, okay, here's this cream we're going to sell you. Here's this procedure we're going to sell you. Here's this thing you can do. the reality is that if you succeed in all of those things, time and age will still catch up to you. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just saying to the extent that society sells you the lie that the most important thing is how you look on the outside, it is a temporary goal. Beyond that, standards of beauty are fickle, right? Right? In this decade, be really thin. In that decade, be really thick. In this decade, uh, wear this style of clothing. In that decade, wear the other style of clothing. Uh, we were looking at uh, Sarah had some old um, like record albums, you know, vinyl, with the cardboard covers, and um, there was a lady that had, I don't forget what the style of hair, but like where you put it way up in the air and lots of hairspray, right? From maybe the 60s or 70s. We look at that now and we're like, eh, maybe not. Okay. Another, six, another 30 years, people will probably be doing that again. How do I know that? Because I'm pretty sure bell bottoms were a thing when my parents were younger and now they're a thing again, or they were, I don't know, three years ago. The point is, standards of beauty, fashion, style, all these things are fickle, right? Why? Well, for one, we have a consumeristic society, so to the extent that we can tell you that what you bought last year is no good and you have to buy a new thing, then that drives sort of this engine of industry and manufacturing and consumption. And the reality is, if you don't really have anything important to focus on in life, then you're going to be always chasing after all these trends. And I'm not saying that we have to completely ignore them or that it's sin if you try to be somewhat stylish or anything like that. The point is not there can be no color and... Mm, uh, interest in our lives, right? That's not the point. The point is, because these things are fickle, if you fix your hope of your acceptance of the people around you accepting you, of your husband loving you, of God being pleased with you, on something as empty and kind of pointless as the style of clothing that you wear, or the things that you do with your hair, or the kind of jewelry that you put on, you're chasing after a goal that you're never really going to achieve. So beauty fades ultimately no matter what you do. Standards of beauty are fickle, and the lie is that the outside matters most. Instead, this passage says, let your internal beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit shine through regardless of your external adornment. And this is where I think the the main point of the message I'm trying to get at is value what God finds valuable. What does God value of a woman in the context of the way that she lives her life? The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Another synonym of that would be it's costly in the sight of God. This is the same word that's used to describe the jar of of perfume, ointment, whatever you want to call it, that, that Mary breaks and wipes on Jesus' feet. And they're like, wow, that's really valuable. How could she just throw it away like that? It's costly, it's valuable, it's worth something. When God assesses your value as a woman, it is to the degree that you have a relationship with him and express the sort of character that corresponds to what he wants you to be. Not, is your hair a certain way? Does your face look a certain way? Do your clothes look a certain way? Do you have this really expensive jewelry? And the reality is, why why is Peter seeming to be down on this a little bit? Well, Peter, Paul, James all point out the reality that to the extent that those things become markers of success in our society, and to the extent that they become opportunities for us to evaluate ourselves relative to other people, they can then in turn lead to division in the church. Because here comes the rich woman, you know, someone like maybe Lydia, the seller of purple in Acts 16 of Philippi. She comes in and dressed really nicely. And then this woman who's a slave comes into the church, not dressed so well. And then people have the response of James 2. Now, that's not the main point here, but that's just an aside. To the extent that we buy into the expectations and valuations of our culture they can then in turn lead to division in the church because we bring that same sort of shallow evaluation of people based on external appearance into the church. And God says that's not how you should be evaluating each other in the church. That's not how you should be relating to each other in the church. That's not supposed to be the basis of why you're gathered at the church. What matters is you're standing before God. Which comes back to, and we'll see this again a little bit later in this passage, uh, Paul says in, a, in another passage that in the church there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, uh, all of the ethnic differences. all the, These things should not be the basis of our gathering or a, or a disunity within our gathering. Because what matters when you gather with God's people is do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Has God's spirit added you to God's family and all those sorts of things? Not how do you look, the way you talk, the way you dress, all of those sorts of things. Here's the point. What you can't see is more real and valuable and costly in God's eyes than what you do see. And when I say see, like externally, right, because you can see internal qualities demonstrating the way that a person lives. And that's what this passage is talking about. But if your first impression of a person is here's how the person looks. You're not evaluating people the way that God says to this kind of ties in with uh, the passage in first Samuel 16. Um, Samuel's convinced that God's going to pick David's oldest brother because he's tall and big and strong. He's worthy to be a king. Here's the problem. The people of Israel wanted that in Saul. And what did they get? A guy who was really tall and cowardly. A guy who was really strong and didn't love God. God didn't care that Saul was tall and big and strong, such that David couldn't even put his armor on. God cared about what was in Saul's heart. What was in Saul's heart was, I'm going to be selfish and cowardly and do my own thing and ultimately reject and go away from God. So when God picks David to be king, he's not the tallest, he's not the oldest, he's not the strongest, he's the little shepherd teenager, probably not boy, but teenager, youth. When God evaluates you in connection with your life as a woman, who are you inside and do people see that on the outside? The passage says, In this way you walk in the footsteps of godly women of the past. These women, probably in context the wives of the patriarchs, since Sarah is mentioned here, entrusted themselves to God despite sinful husbands. Think about Leah, for example. Jacob did not love her pretty much their whole marriage. He was constantly angling for how to have Rachel have kids, because he did love her of how he could honor Rachel and ignore Leah and her children. So she goes her whole marriage, having to plead with Jacob to give her children, and then once she had them, having them ignored and passed over in favor of his other wife's kids. Now, the reality is, Jacob should have been, despite the fact that his father-in-law tricked him, Jacob should have been content with Leah and come to love her, and given up on Rachel, and a whole lot of the chaos that happened in his family would never have happened. But all that aside, the situation in which Leah found herself was with a husband who was selfish and unkind and unloving. And yet, as best we can tell from the context of Scripture, she never stopped trying to win his love and and build a relationship with him. Now, we don't have a lot of specific verses about that, but she, at the very least, wanted children by him, but it seems that she really and truly wanted a relationship with him and was willing to go to any means necessary to have that. And so when you have someone like Leah, who stuck with her husband despite the fact that he didn't love her, and despite the fact that there was all this chaos in her family, you, I think, catch a little bit of a glimpse of what Peter's talking about in this passage. If God were calling you as a wife to stick with a husband who's quite honestly not a great person, would you do it if in the end God used it to bring him to believe in Jesus? And I recognize that there's probably a degree to which you're like, you're a guy, you don't have to think about that, whatever, whatever. Like, that, like You don't understand what you're asking. And that may well be true. But God understood what he was asking through Peter. Like I said earlier, this passage is not a tool for someone to manipulate a woman who is being legitimately threatened to stay indefinitely in a relationship like that. But to the extent that you feel like your husband doesn't love you like the way that you want, or doesn't appreciate you the way that he should, if that leads you to bitterness, and trying to get back at him and trying to make his life miserable in little ways because he's making your life miserable, this passage would say here is something that God is calling you to instead. If you hope in God, adorn yourself with internal beauty that trusts in God and what he's doing in your life, You are daughters of Sarah, it says, if you do what is right without any dread. So verse two says, as they observe your chaste and fearful or respectful behavior, I think in verse two, it's fear of God. In verse six, do what is right without being frightened by any fear. It's without being full of any dread. So you ever had uh, that sinking feeling when you you you're certain something bad is about to happen? That's, I think, what he's getting at. And, and, and not just, I forgot to do my homework, I'm going to get a bad grade, like that sort of dread, but like a far more significant dread, like something really, really bad is about to happen. So here's what theoretically could have been going on in someone's mind. My husband doesn't love God. God wants me to have a relationship with him expressed perhaps through prayer. If I pray, what is he going to do? And being so full of fear and dread of what he's going to do, that you say, I'm not going to do what God's going to do, and you fear him more than God. And so that, I think, is what Peter is getting at here. Not that there's no reason to fear, because there might well have been. Not that there's no potential threat of consequence, because there very, very well may have been. But to the extent that you are afraid of one thing over another, you are more concerned about what is pleasing to God than you are about the consequences that come from living in a way that's pleasing to God that could come from the people around you. And this is how it ties into what we looked at last week. If you are most fearful of the threat that a corrupt, unjust authority might pose to you, you're going to say, I'm not going to speak about Jesus because I could end up in jail. I'm not going to fall after Jesus because they could take my stuff away from me. I'm not going to do this, that, or the other thing because all of this bad could happen. This passage is saying, if as a wife you allow yourself not to be full of dread of the bad things that might be happening, all of the what-ifs, and instead you say, I'm living in a way that fears God, then you're walking in Sarah's footsteps. I think this ties in particularly to what we're going to see in chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. We're going to get to that a little bit later. But I think that that is what Peter is anticipating saying shortly. Specifically, the question mark in someone's mind is, is God going to keep His word? Is He going to look after me? Is He going to be faithful to me in this situation when it doesn't look very likely like it's going to turn out well? Sarah is a fascinating example that he uses here. Sarah follows Abraham to a new land, leaves her family, moves hundreds of miles away, I forget the exact distance, from where they were, down to the land of Canaan, probably never to see her family again, she follows her husband. She follows him despite his sinful decisions, uh, or at least foolish decisions. Pharaoh says, Hey, I want to add your wife to my harem. And Abraham's like, "Eh, I don't want to die, so okay. And you lie, and everything will be okay. And God protects Sarah from being defiled by Pharaoh. And the same thing happens again with one of the kings of the Canaanites. God protects Sarah in both those instances, but she follows Abraham despite clearly foolish and potentially sinful decisions that he makes. Sarah follows Abraham and Abraham's God even with imperfect faith. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read you a few verses from Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis 18, we find the passage that is probably being referenced here by Peter. God appears to Abraham and has a conversation with him and he prepares a meal for him and all of this. It says, Then they said to him, the angels that are present, Where is Sarah your wife? He said, There, in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and Sarah your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid, and he said, No, but you did laugh. Why of all the passages would Peter pick this one as an example of Sarah being the sort of woman that that faithful wives should look up to and pattern themselves after? I mean, from a human perspective, this is her worst moment. God says, I'm going to do this amazing thing. She's like, yeah, right. And yet, in that moment, what elements do we see? She recognizes that Abraham is her husband. She calls him Lord like, like he is, I mean, the word is literally like God, ruler, master, like all of those ideas wrapped up in, in one when she where she refers to him in verse twelve, so there is clearly an attitude, a recognition of the relationship of the authority structure that she finds herself in, which is what Peter is getting at at the beginning of chapter three, this submission idea. There is a recognition of her desire for kids, even though she knows, humanly speaking, it's impossible. There's also this element of fear, right? But what she's afraid of there, she's afraid that God's going to be displeased with her because she laughed at his word. Here, in Peter's passage, he says, don't be afraid of what the people around you are going to do. So even in that moment of imperfect faith, Sarah expresses fear of God, submission to her husband, despite the fact that she laughs about the reality that she doesn't think it can happen. You know what her son ends up getting named Isaac, which means laughter. So she wonders if God is going to do the thing that He, is, he said He would do. And then... Isaac is born. Abraham calls him laughter. Whether that was his idea or Sarah's idea, we don't know. But every time she calls her son, she's reminded of this moment, I'm sure. She expressed faith in God. So why should wives pattern themselves after Sarah? Why should they do all these things Wives should submit to even unbelieving husbands because God finds a gentle and quiet spirit in the face of persecution or difficulty to be costly and valuable. It's interesting, in the other two sections of this sort of grouping here, citizens and government, slaves and masters, wives and husbands, there is not a corresponding description of what the authority is supposed to do. But in this one, there is. Husbands, dwell with your wives. And I know in verse 7 it says live with your wives, but the word is a little bit more than just like be in the same house. It's like dwell. It's be present with. It's, it's all of those sorts of ideas. Peter here focuses on the idea of making a home with your wife. Don't treat her like a roommate or a child. She is family and in important ways in God's sight is your equal. It says dwell in an understanding way. In the first part of verse seven, understanding what understanding that she is weaker and the weakness here is not. Because she is potentially more open or expressive emotionally, and that's a lie that our culture has perpetrated. Women are weaker because they cry more. And so then guys sort of get smug and they're like, so we are better because we don't cry. Men don't cry. The reality is not that women express emotion more than men. It's that they express certain emotions more than men as a general rule. You ever ridden with a guy in traffic? He's definitely expressing emotion. It's just not that he's usually crying. It's usually that he's mad, right? So it's not that men don't express emotion and women do. So men are better than women. The weakness here in all likelihood in the context is probably about Physical strength, because he uses the same word here uh, that is translated in the passage where Paul talks about um, uh, the idea of vessel, like the content of your body, like the the container in which you find yourself, this idea that 's more fragile or weaker or something like that, right so Paul says in first Thessalonians four possess your own vessel in sanctity and honor, and then it talks in I think Romans nine about vessels for use honorably or dishonorably. Um, the idea is basically, I think, as a general rule, men are constitutionally, like, in the, their, their physical nature stronger in certain ways than women are. And that's not a demeaning thing to recognize, that's just a reality. Now, the also reality that we have to recognize is there are women who break that trend, right? There are women who could lift like a thousand pounds deadlift, and the reasons they're able to do that is neither here nor there, but some women are really, really, really strong, right? But on average, men are stronger than women when it comes to the way that God has designed them physically. We also have to recognize that this is not an absolute statement when it comes to something like childbearing, because women go through in childbearing what would make a grown man cry and uncontrollably for days on end, right? So we're not, talk, we're not denying those basic realities, right? But Paul is saying, recognize that she is weaker and that she is different, a woman and not a man, which is a distinction that's lost in society today. Uh, society wants to make men and women interchangeable and fail to recognize the fact that God has made us different for a particular and good reason for men to be fathers for women to be mothers for men to go out and fight and do all these sorts of things to women to, for women to to care and nurture and love in a way that most men are not patient enough to do and we could be by god's help but but just dispositionally and and just the way that god has made us men and women are different and society wants to act like that's something that you can just change by by medicine, by surgery, by just sort of flipping a switch in your head, and then we're just interchangeable, right? And that's not the case. And we lose the beauty of the design that God has set up when we act as though that's the way that things are. God has made women different but important. Paul goes on to this uh, in his discussion about the way that he's structured the church. The church is made up of people who have differing gifts and abilities But this person doesn't say, well, I just help serve meals, so I'm not as important as the person who plays the piano. Or I just do this, so I'm not as important as the person who sings. Or whatever else. Like We, in the context of the church, can start to get these attitudes, well, I'm better because I do blank. And Paul says to the Corinthians, stop being childish and thinking of yourselves that way. And Peter is similarly saying to husbands who want to view their wives in a demeaning way as lesser than themselves, stop being childish. God has made you different. That doesn't mean that you're worse or better. And so not just dwell in according to knowledge, and most likely according to knowledge in an understanding way. It's literally, the, the phrase is according to knowledge. According to knowledge probably of God. To the extent that you have a relationship with God, that informs your relationship with your wife. So do you dwell with your wife according to knowledge in the context of your own relationship with God? Dwell with her by showing her honor because, in verse 7, she is a fellow heir of the grace of God. She is a fellow recipient of God's eternal life. What does this look like? 1 Peter 1, 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And in chapter 3, Verse 9, you're going to inherit a blessing. She is an heir with you of salvation, of God's blessing, and so recognize that you're standing before God is on equal ground. Also recognize that you need to show her honor because your prayers to God will fail if you dishonor her. 1 Peter 3, verse 12, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So honoring her is is giving value and recognition even as God the Father directed toward God the Son. And I I don't say that lightly because 1 Corinthians 11, Paul makes this parallel. Father over son, Christ over church, husband over wife. If the parallel holds, that means that we cannot say that there is a, in the relationships where there is a parallel, right? So father over son, is the father better than the son? They're both God. The one about Christ over the church is a little bit tricky because Jesus is God and the church is not God, so it's not a one-for-one relationship. But with husband and wife, again, we go back to two of the same kind, if you will, right? The husband is human, the wife is human, so the wife is not less human because she is a wife. So, this passage, I think, is saying don't treat her as inferior. Don't treat her as your servant. Husbands should value wives despite their differences from men because God sees them as equally valuable and worthy of eternal life through Jesus' work. So, last week we saw how Jesus modeled obedience to God will lead you to suffering from unjust rulers and authorities and how by God's help you can keep obeying anyway even if it means what is doing right up until the point of death. Because Jesus has died to pay for sin, you can, through Jesus, die to sin and be freed from sin, and then you no longer need to fear death, and you can obey with God as your highest authority, even when the authorities before you are wicked and cruel. And that was Jesus' experience of the authorities that were over him in his own life. The third of these three examples is this context of marriage. And the reality is that some marriages are going to involve suffering and difficulty. Peter focuses primarily on wives who have unbelieving husbands. Such husbands are not going to value their wives' faith in God, and yet God can use that faith to bring unbelieving husbands to true belief. And so, as a wife, whether your husband loves and follows God or not, you can submit to him. Don't believe the lie of society that what matters most is external beauty or feeling empowered or some other inachievable and worthless goal. Value what God values for you as a woman and specifically as a wife that you have a gentle and quiet spirit flowing out of a real and abiding relationship with God. If you as a husband today you don't believe in God or you need to grow in your relationship with Jesus, God may well be using your wife's trust in Him and obedience to Him to show you what He's like. He is kind when we are unkind. He's faithful when we don't keep our promises. He's forgiven when we don't deserve it. And so listen to what God is saying to you through your wife's daily life and turn to Him or grow in your relationship with Him let's say that you're a professing Christian husband. What is your relationship with God like? You cannot dwell with your wife according to the knowledge of God if you don't really know God all that well. Your wife is not supposed to be the spiritual leader in your home. You are. Maybe you got saved a year ago and she's been a Christian for 10 years. Obviously, there's going to be a gap in knowledge, but there should not be a gap in passion for knowing and getting closer to God. Be the leader that God called you to be. When you dwell with your wife according to the knowledge of God, you will also seek to know her as a person, her hopes and dreams, her fears and struggles, because that's how God ministers to you with compassion and with understanding. You're not going to mock her failures. Hey, You want to see how my wife screwed up this week? Let me tell you about it. It's not what this passage is calling husbands to do. You're not going to treat her as a child. You don't get to know what's happening. You don't get to have any freedom and privileges and responsibilities. You're not going to lord it over her like Jesus told the disciples not to do, even though that's their Gentile examples. Hey, look, this is how they act. Don't act that way. You will serve her and love her and be patient with her. She is not worse because she is a woman, more emotional in some ways, less strong in some ways. She is on equal footing in God's eyes, so honor her as God honors her, and honor about her the things that God honors particularly, especially her heart. Do not belittle her for her external appearance or the ways you think she doesn't live up to your expectations. Don't be the unjust or unreasonable authority that we talked about last week. God is calling wives to do an incredibly difficult thing. You marry someone, you stick with him as long as humanly possible and even beyond with God's help so that God can use you to make him what he wants him to be through your testimony and to husbands. He says value about your wife, the things that I value her relationship with me and a gentle and quiet spirit. Those are the sorts of things you're supposed to value, give her honor for show her recognition for. Is it wonderful if she's a good cook? Yes. Is it great if she looks beautiful when you go on a date somewhere? Yes. But that's not really the point. The point is, does she love God? Do you see that she loves God? And do you honor her for loving God? So for both husbands and for wives, value what God finds valuable in marriage. Wives, a gentle and quiet spirit. Husbands, value that your wife loves God. And let God use the other person to draw you closer to himself Instead of seeing each other in some kind of competition or that one of you is better than the other or how can I get an edge on the other person? God is using each of you in each other's lives to draw him closer to himself, to be an example to people around you, all these sorts of things. So let God do that work. Value what he finds valuable in marriage because it is a picture of the Jesus that you and I claim to know And his response to the authorities that God placed over him and and all of these things that God was unfolding. Let's pray. Fathers, we consider passages like this. We realize that what you call us to do as your people is usually not complicated, but it is rarely easy. I pray that you would help us to live up to these things that you're calling us to do. For wives to be patient with sinful husbands. For husbands to be humble. For all of us to recognize that you are doing your work through the people that you have put around us in our lives sometimes those who are closest to us, sometimes it's easy for us not to see that because we're so close to the situation or we've been in it for so long or we've kind of stopped expecting you to work. Lord, I recognize that there are people here today who aren't married because they uh, haven't met someone yet and started out on that. There are people who aren't married because they've lost the person that they loved and, for, and dwelled with for many years. There are those that are young and just observing all these things and, and coming to understand all of these aspects of life. But well, This passage is primarily geared toward those who are presently married and the attitudes and responses that we're supposed to have. And so I pray that you would help us to pay attention to those things and to live them out in a way that honors you. Trusting that you will keep your promises. Recognizing that even when life is hard, it doesn't mean that you've abandoned us. Looking for ways to be pleasing to you in whatever situation we find ourselves. Because there is this great and wonderful salvation and inheritance that you have laid out before us that we're pressing toward and expecting and looking to. And so all of the moments between then and now are, in a sense, getting us ready to enjoy that and, in a sense, inspiring other people around us toward that end as well. Help us to see that as a good goal and to press on toward it and not give up too soon. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.